Many of you have asked how camp went this week. Every year I serve for a week as the chaplain up at Crestfield. This was my third year serving there. Camp Crestfield is our Presbytery's local church camp and retreat center. And every year when I go up there, I meet some really great kids. I did youth ministry for about 10 years before going to seminary. Uh, so this is always a very precious time to me. Uh, we joke that I've just got too old to sleep on the floor and run around at all hours of the night with kids anymore. So I get this week that sort of scratches that itch, and then I get to come back to normal adult activities for the rest of the year. Uh, but I really love spending time with these young people who are going to become the leaders of the church and the world someday. And the campers this year especially really blew me away. We spent um, our worship times together talking about how God made each of us unique and special and how we are called to change the world, to be world changers for God. And on one of the last nights we prayed together, the sincerity of the prayers that these children lifted up was just beautiful. It was moving. I was blown away by the maturity and the insight of these kids. They really understood what prayer is about, too. They weren't just praying for um, the little things that annoy them. They weren't just praying that their little brother would stop bugging them and things like that. They, they were lifting up to God the things that were on their mind. At the same time, they were listening to God about how to be God's hands and feet and voice in the particular situations that were concerning them. They were praying that God would help them know how to make this world a place where everyone has enough food, where nobody lives in fear, where everyone has equal rights regardless of their race or gender or who they love or where they come from, where nobody feels like they're on the edges of society or like they are worth less than someone else, a world where everyone knows that they are loved and special. These were prayers coming from 10 to 14-year-old kids that they were seeing this, this kind of need in the world and that they were feeling empowered to talk to God about these concerns and to listen to how they might be the hands and feet of Christ in the world. It was very moving and humbling. And I know that in every generation, grown-ups worry about the future of the world because of this new generation of crazy kids coming up. This is not a new phenomenon. If you've ever seen the musical Bye Bye Birdie, there's that song, Kids, What's the Matter with Kids These Days? Um, that is not a young musical, my friends. Um, it's a song that just about every generation of adults sings about the children around them. It was said about my generation of kids coming up. It was said about all of your generations of kids coming up. Adults thought you were the nuts that had no idea and were never going to get your heads on straight. I promise you this. But in every generation as well, I believe that grown-ups need to spend more time with kids because they get it in ways that we don't. When Jesus says to have faith like a child, he's, he's saying to have that sense of wonder, to have that sense of imagination and of we can change the world. Kids aren't set in their own frameworks and old thinking in the ways that we are. They're better at listening to God and going out on a limb because nobody's told them what that limb is supposed to look like or how stable that branch is supposed to be. And thank God for these kids that are coming up 
today. They get it. They get what the passage we're going to read today is all about. They understand prayer in a powerful way that we tend to, to lose as we get older. They do things differently than we do. But let's face it, once upon a time, you were one of those crazy kids doing things differently than your parents and your grandparents and their parents. These were 10 to 14-year-old children praying about how they could change the world to make it a better place for everyone. They were setting aside their own fears and worries and places of honor and privilege for the sake of others. And that is where I saw God at work in the world this week. Amen. gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark. We've been traveling through this gospel together for the summer so far. It comes from chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. 
For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Every website or book out there on how to pray successfully is snake oil. There is plenty of heartless theology in the world that would tell us that the message of this passage from Mark is that all you have to do is have enough faith in Jesus and you or those you pray for will be healed from whatever ails them. And if the prayer isn't answered in this way, you just didn't have enough faith. Not everyone is healed miraculously in this world. Not even every faithful person is healed miraculously in this world. Saying that all the truly faithful who pray for physical healing are granted that physical healing is a terribly insensitive reading of this passage. Even to say those who pray and aren't healed weren't meant to be healed isn't very helpful. That's not to say that healing isn't possible or that we should not pray for healing Rather, it means that it's not always quite what we expect. And it means that prayer is something more than a, if you love me, do this list for God, or a test of how strong our faith is. There's no special angel or saint you pray to for healing that will ensure that healing or positive outcome. There is no particular combination of words that will fix whatever the problem is you're praying about. 
Jesus shows us throughout the Gospels that miraculous healing does sometimes happen as a result of prayer. But nowhere, nowhere does it say that physical healing is the purpose of prayer. Never does scripture tell us that prayer is some sort of spiritual art or incantation that if said correctly will bend God's will or change God's mind. It's not biblical to say that prayer is a way to magically change our circumstances. Scripture never says that if our prayers aren't answered in the way we expect, it's because we didn't have enough faith. So when we ask, does prayer work? We need to be careful what we are really asking. Because if we ask, do you get what you pray for? The answer has to be, not always. Or it depends. Prayer is not our petition to change God's mind. It's our way of allowing God to change our mind. If we come into prayer with any other goal in sight, we are likely to come out of it frustrated and disappointed. I've heard many a person say, I'm just not good at praying, or God doesn't answer my prayers, or I wonder if prayer really works, or something along those lines, because they've been taught that God hears and answers all of our prayers when we are faithful enough. I remember being told as a kid that prayer was like having a hotline phone to God, and I'm old enough that this was usually imagined as a big red rotary phone. And we could just pick up this big red hotline phone at any time and tell God what we needed. But there is a big, giant hole in this analogy. Phones go both ways, as my dad will remind you weekly if I forget to call him on Sunday afternoon. Even hotlines go both ways. Have you ever been on the phone with someone who just talks and talks and talks and talks and never listens and you can't get off of the phone with them and they get off track and start talking about something totally unrelated to what you're trying to say or they just try to fix everything for you and tell you how to do things? How much actually gets accomplished in those conversations? How dare we have the cheek to think that we can call God up after God's been telling us to call because there's something we need to know, and just tell God how to fix stuff and rant about everything in the world and never stop to listen. Now, we absolutely should talk to God to get things off of our chest. That much is true. But we have to be willing to listen in return to find out what God is doing in those situations. Once we are done saying our piece, we have to be ready to listen to what God has to say in return. We have to be open to the fact that God might not say what we want to hear. It's not because God's mind needs to be changed. It's because our minds need to be changed. We have to be willing to understand that God's priorities are not always the same as ours. And when our priorities are different than God's, it's our priorities that need to change, not God's. In this passage today, we do see Jesus providing physical healing, but it's done in a funny order, and it challenges the people coming forward for that healing. They have to pay attention to what Jesus is up to in the world. It's not a simple story of faithful person praise, Jesus heals. 
Jarius has to exercise patience and a change in priorities. A woman who hopes to get that healing quietly gets called out of the crowd. From Jarius's perspective, this is a story of faithful person asks Jesus for healing. Jesus gets sidetracked, and while Jesus is busy doing something else, faithful person's daughter dies. And then Jesus heals her. From the interrupting woman's perspective, it's desperate person nobody is willing to have anything to do with reaches out to Jesus in one last attempt to find healing. And instead of blowing her off for some rich guy, Jesus not only notices that she has approached him for healing, he stops and takes the time to talk to her, to build a relationship with her, to comfort her. This is particularly striking because under Jewish law at the time, this woman would have been considered unclean. That means that most of the good stuff of life she would have been barred from doing. Touching a rabbi and a healer would have been right out. By comparison, Jarius's well-off 12-year-old daughter would not have been considered unclean until she died. Right up until her death, she was living a life of privilege. Because Jesus stopped to help someone who was so ashamed and so desperate, Jarius's privileged daughter also became unclean when she died. She lost her life and her social status because Jesus stopped for someone who essentially had no life, who had no social status. In a world that wants only to help those with no status, if it does not infringe on the status of those in privileged positions, this is a pretty bold move. You see, our privilege does not matter to God. Our safe little bubbles are not Jesus' first priority. Sometimes we lose things we love so that others with less privilege and security can be offered healing and grace and compassion and relationship. That means we have to let go of, lose, or give up our status, our privilege, our spot at the top of the list in order to find real healing in Jesus and to truly experience his kingdom on earth, to see the answer to our prayers. In the kingdom that Christ has set into motion, the needs of those on the margins, the ones who have been pressed to the corner, to the edges, to the sides, are addressed before the powerful and celebrated. When Jesus is allowed to be in charge, the dignified are put on hold, while those who the world has stripped of their dignity are made whole. It is very sad that Jairus's little daughter died. I have a 12-year-old daughter. I can't imagine losing her. But think about the sadness in the life of the other woman. Notice that she has been hemorrhaging. She has been sick and unclean for as long as that child has been alive. Twelve years. We often forget about those who've been suffering for a very long time. We move on to the newer, fresher wounds. All the while, there are people hemorrhaging for years, pushed to the corner and labeled unclean. You can apply this to individuals and to entire groups of people. This is true of humankind on small and on large scales. 
Sometimes we just have to be reminded that they are still there. And saying, wait, hang on. Jesus was reminding Jairus that there were other people who had been suffering for far longer than he had. Not everyone seeks after Jesus in the same order as we expect them to. Not everyone seeking Jesus is clean. Not everyone comes to Jesus with everything in order. And yet, we are called to be in relationship with all those in the margins, the ones who the world says aren't worth our time. Sometimes that means putting the desires and even the needs of the rich and the powerful and the privileged aside. Doesn't mean God doesn't care about those who are better off to begin with, but it does mean that holding our needs and desires above those of the less advantaged is unchristlike. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, I would venture to say probably all of us, are Jarius. We are not the hemorrhaging woman. So this week I encourage you to spend time listening, not just talking, when you pray. And in those prayers, ask God how you might be able to set aside your own agenda and timeline and priorities and privilege and stop with Jesus to enter into a healing relationship with those who have been told they are unclean. As we enter into our time of celebrating communion this morning, remember that Jesus came and invited all people to this table. There is no seat of privilege at the table in the kingdom of heaven. There is only grace for all in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.